chapter 7. We're going to read the first 10 verses as we kind of get our feet wet in the passage that I'm assuming Pastor Andrew's going to open up and expound to us. Great passage about our Lord's power, about a man's faith, and included is even a difference of opinion about worthiness. So, wonderful passage. Let's read, if you don't have a Bible of your own, and a few Bibles under the chair, it's going to be on page 863. After he had finished all these sayings in the hearing of the people, speaking of Jesus, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, and was highly favored by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that following him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for just in ten verses so much truth that is packed, that is able to build us up in our faith to help us clear our minds from the distortions of the things we see in the world. And so, Lord, I ask that you would open our eyes, that you'd make our hearts tender to hear what your word says this morning. We ask that you'd give our our pastor um, your wisdom and clarity as he communicates what you intended when you put this in your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Thank you, Tim. <clears throat> when you get a chance, catch Tim and ask him how it went in Lapeer. He was doing VBS all last week in Lapeer, huh? Get a chance to catch up on that. <clears throat> so Jesus is now in Capernaum, right? He's returned back to Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum is his headquarters for all intents and purposes. Uh, it's where he's, uh, his, his, his base of operations, where he's on mission and uh, continuing forward with preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as he labors in Capernaum, uh, he comes across this centurion. We're introduced to this new character, this centurion, as it says in verse 2. Now a centurion, right? So a centurion uh, was a mid-ranking officer, uh, basically the backbone of the Roman army, and he was called the centurion because typically had at least or up to 100 soldiers under him, anywhere from 70 to 100 different soldiers under his command. He was right smack in between uh, what was called the decurion, who commanded 10 soldiers, and a who uh, commanded up to 1,000 soldiers. 
Uh, so the centurion was right in between uh, those those commanding positions, and therefore like a mid-ranking position. Think maybe like a captain or something like that in today's terms. Again, centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. Uh, Polybius, uh, a Greek and Roman historian, uh, describes them this way. He said they must not be so much seekers after danger as, as men who can command, steady in action, reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground and die at their posts. Uh, so that was something of their character, something of their uh, reputation. And, you know, the Bible speaks about a number of different centurions. Uh, whenever the Bible speaks about centurions, it always speaks about them uh, quite favorably. Uh, it has some good things to say about a number of them. But the highest praise in the Bible when it comes to centurions is this one right here in our text in Luke 7, uh, verses 1 through 10. In fact, as, as Tim read it, you caught a hope in verse 9 where it says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd, which is to say, this is big, this is important, this is big flashing neon lights. Think of billboard with giant letters. That's why he turns to the crowd. He, don't miss this, this is important. He's emphasizing, he's underlining it. And he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now that's incredible. Because, think about his, his earthly mother, Mary. She had pretty strong faith, wouldn't you say? When the angel uh, comes to her and talks about the virgin birth, her response is to say, let it be as you have said, right? Let it be according to your word. That's pretty astounding faith, the virgin birth. We've also encountered John the Baptist. Would you say he's a man of pretty strong faith, pretty great faith? A tremendous faith. And uh, earlier we looked in Luke 4, remember the, the four men who had a paralytic friend and they stopped at nothing to get their friend to Jesus, even digging a hole through the roof and dropping him in so that he can get to Jesus. That's, that's pretty remarkable faith. And yet Jesus, as far as we know, it's not recorded in Scripture, it does not say he marveled at their faith, but this centurion, he turns to the crowd, he marvels at, at, their, at his faith and turns to the crowd and says, I've not encountered this kind of faith anywhere in all of Israel. And quite frankly, for Jesus to say he marvels at something makes me marvel. <laughs> Jesus is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Uh, at night, it's fun to look up in the stars and, 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 and see and, and maybe look on your phone or your computer at deep space pictures. And we marvel, we're amazed at, at some of the images that come back as we probe deeper in and see these fantastic things out in, the, out in deep space. And we're in awe, right? And Jesus, he's just like, well, I, I made that, I did that. That's, that's nothing to him. In fact, the scriptures say he's named all the stars and holds them all in his right hand. That, that's how great and awesome and wonderful and incredible he is. So, so for Jesus to marvel at something... That tells us we better sit up and pay attention, huh? And, and wonder, what is it about this faith that made the Lord Jesus Christ marvel? In fact, <clears throat> there's only two times in the Gospels where it said that Jesus did marvel. Both times he's in Capernaum, and here in our text he marvels because of the great faith of the centurion. Uh, but in, Ma in Mark 6.6, 6, he marvels at the unbelief of the people in Capernaum. 
Uh, so it's interesting to think about that, that nothing appears to sadden the Lord more than unbelief, and nothing appears to gladden him more uh, than strong faith in him. So it's just this remarkable text that challenges us to think about, do I have that kind of faith? Is Jesus marveling at my faith? And so as we dig through this text and try and kind of explore what was it about his faith that made Jesus marvel, I want you to be asking yourself and thinking about that in the back of your mind, would Jesus, is Jesus marveling at my faith today or right now? And so as we make our way through this text, the first point this morning is you see faith and love. This centurion, this uh, Roman officer, had a servant who was seriously ill. So what it says in verse 2, a centurion had a servant who was sick, so sick that he's at the point of death. He's, he's barely hanging on. He's knocking on death's door. He's hanging on only by a thread. Now, you might think that this centurion, because he's, he's powerful, mid-ranking commander, that he's, he's seen some wars, he's seen some battle, that maybe he's cold-hearted. But he's not cold-hearted. He's, nothing could be farther from the truth. He is a man of love and compassion, Again, verse 2 ends by saying that this servant was highly valued by the centurion, which is to say he had very high esteem and great affection for his servant. Now, that's not normal in that day and age. Uh, The reality is in in Jesus' day, in the day of the centurion, sadly, in Roman law, a servant had zero rights A servant was, for all intents and purposes to them, disposable. And so if a servant is sick, you just get rid of them and you move on. That was their mentality. That's how they operated. But not so with this centurion. He highly valued, had high esteem and affection for his servants and would stop at nothing to save him. And so when he hears about Jesus... He sends out a delegation or mediators of elders and of Jewish elders to go talk to Jesus on his behalf. And they seem very happy to do that. Verse 4 says, When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. Notice what it says He loves our nation, He is the one who built us our synagogue. So again, we see his compassion. The centurion is a, is a loving man because Jews and Romans typically did not get along. They hated each other. The Roman Empire did what? The Roman Empire came in and subjugated them, dominated them, is ruling over them, is under, under their fist, right? In fact, there are zealots within the Israel or Jewish nation who are conspiring how to overthrow Rome. And the Romans would refer to the Gentiles as filthy pigs. And the Jews would return the favor with not such nice insults themselves. They, they hated one another, wanted nothing to do with one another. And yet this centurion, who's a mid-ranking officer over a hundred men within the Roman army, loves the Jewish nation. And the proof for that love is it says that he even built us our synagogue. It's a remarkable man. And you see his love, right? His love for the servant, uh, his love for uh, the Jewish 
nation, I would suggest to you that he is a great example. He is in the flesh example of everything we just talked about in Luke 6 over the last four or five, six weeks. Remember Luke 6 is, and the servant on the plane, and that's fleshing out a real disciple, a true disciple of Jesus Christ. And one of the marks of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is they love their enemies. And this centurion, who is an enemy of the Jews, he loves them, he cares for them, he does good for them. He uses his faith uh, to prosper them. He's an interesting man. He does not merely love in word only. Uh, That's worthless. He loves in action. He has a great faith filled with love and compassion for others. The thought, thought that really hit me as I studied this is he's a man over 100 soldiers that he becomes a servant to his servant, that he might help him. That's astonishing love and faith. There's no wonder that Jesus marvels at that, for Jesus is God. He is Lord of heaven and earth. But as God, he became a servant and gave his life as a ransom for our sin, that we might be healed and forgiven. I think that's in part why Jesus marvels The centurion demonstrates this love and compassion for his enemies. And Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of love for our enemies. We also see faith and humility. The elders implore Jesus to go with him, or to go with them to go heal the centurion's servant, and Jesus graciously does. It tells us, verse 6, and Jesus went with them. But while Jesus is on the way, in fact, he's almost there, uh, the centurion sends out another delegation of, this time, friends. And the friends say, on behalf of the centurion, in verse 6, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am, catch this, not worthy to have you come under my roof. Not worthy. Do you see the contrast? The elders of the Jews were like, he deserves it. You got to help this guy out. He's earned it. He's, he loves us. And he, he built our synagogue, man. You got to help this guy. He deserves it, right? He's worthy, they say. But the centurion uh, has a very different attitude. But if we are honest, I think we all are prone uh, to think that way, the Jewish elders do, when they say, man, you got to help this guy. He's earned it. He's, he's worthy. He's, he's deserved it. And, and sometimes we, we think to ourselves, we might not say it out loud or, or quite say it this way, but if we're being honest, sometimes we, we would think, you know, I've, I've worked so hard. I deserve that raise. I deserve that vacation. I manage my money well. I deserve that new car. I'm a good husband or a good, good wife, so I deserve my spouse to do this for me. And sometimes that, that thinking creeps into our relationship with God. You know, I, I read my Bible every day. I give money to the church. I've even slept in the church overnight for family promise. I've picked up trash on the side of the road for the church, for the community. I've done all these things. I'm regular in my attendance. When they need volunteers, I step up. I I, I do all these things. I I don't deserve to be sick. I deserve to be healed. I don't deserve to have this awful job. I I deserve a new one. Why, Why is God doing this? Doesn't he see all that I'm doing? Do you ever think that way? Do you ever point to your resume, so to speak, and, and say, see, God, 
What are you going to do about that? Why is, why is this happening? I did this. Why is this happening? But not so the centurion. The centurion has this position of authority. He's very benevolent. He has no presumption at all. He knows where he stands with Jesus. He's humble. Does not consider himself worthy to even be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we learn from him that the faith that makes Jesus marvel isn't just a faith that's marked by love, but it's, it's marked by humility. That great faith is marked by humility. Humility is the key to faith. Uh, Abraham, who's the, the Jewish exemplar of, of faith, says in Genesis 18:27, when he's in the presence of the Lord, he says, I am but dust and ashes. John the Baptist, a remarkable example of faith, says in John 1.27 about Jesus that he is not even worthy to untie his shoelaces. Remember Peter? Uh, when Jesus calls Peter and Jesus does that miraculous catch of the fish, throw the nets over on that side, and there's so many, the boat's sinking. And, and Peter's response to that with Jesus as he says, depart from me, get away from me, for I am an unholy and sinful man. You hear the humility that's there? This astounding humility? Uh, Jesus teaches on in Luke 17 that we are unworthy servants, and uh, the great example is found in Luke 18, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. They go to the temple to pray, and the Pharisee's pretty full of himself, right? He rehearses all the great things he does. He says, he says to God, thank you, I'm not like other people. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes of all that I get. You know, kind of look at me, look at me. Then there's a tax collector who everyone hates and despises. It says he stands far off. He won't even look up. He beats his breast, saying, crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus concludes by saying, I tell you, that tax collector went home, what? Justified, not the Pharisee who boasted in himself. And then Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So see, faith that makes the Lord Jesus Christ marvel is this humble faith. A great faith begins with a recognition of our great unworthiness, that all of our achievements, our wealth, our position, that they mean nothing apart from, a whole, or apart from faith in a holy God. A humble person says, there's no good in me apart from Jesus. That the reality is if we got what we deserved from Jesus, it would be hell eternal. And that all of life is grace. And of course, Jesus marvels at this because Jesus was humble. And Jesus, though he was God, became poor, made himself a slave, and was obedient even to the point of what? Death on a cross. And so Jesus marvels at the humility of the centurion. So we see faith in love, faith in humility. How about faith in authority? We see this in verse 7. In verse 7, uh, the centurion goes on to say through his friends, I did not presume to come to you and hear these faith-filled words, but say the word and let my servant be healed. 
Those are, that, those are amazing words, huh? Just say the word. My servant will be healed. And he goes on to explain uh, that he understands the principle of authority. He knows what it means to say something, expect people to do it, right? He says in verse 8, I am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say uh, to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he understands this, this principle of authority, right? If, if I say, it happens. And it was neat. While I was preparing this, uh, this was Thursday, I was kind of thinking through this some more, and I was sitting in my office, and while I'm doing that, uh, Chuck and Matthew Cornish are back there working on, on the Welcome Center, renovating a lot of that. And I can hear Chuck barking out commands. That's the way Chuck is. Chuck barks out commands, an unhumble man that he is. Just <laughs> bold and authoritative and mean, and just bark, barking commands. Not at all. These act offs. You know, you know that's not true. But he was barking commands. And Matthew would run and do it. It was awesome. Uh, Chuck would ask him to do something, and Matthew would just go. They were replacing the door or switching doors in my office. So I, uh, Chuck would say, hey, do this, and Matthew would do it. It was just this great example of submission and authority and being helpful and being a servant and being humble and being loving. Uh, it, was, it was neat to see uh, as, as I worked on the text. I love when the Lord gives you uh, real-life illustrations and examples like that from his word. But you can see in, in verse 8... Uh, that the centurion is arguing from lesser to greater, right? If I, a mid-ranking officer in the Roman army, tell my servant to do this or, or tell a soldier to do this and they do it, how much more you, Jesus, who are Lord, did you catch that? We calls him Lord back in verse 6. You're Lord. You're Lord of heaven and earth. You're the king of the universe. You are the Lord. How much more when you tell someone to do it? It happens. It's very reminiscent of Genesis 1 where God says this and it happens. God said, let there be light and there was light and, and, and so on and so on. The authority uh, that Jesus has, the centurion recognizes it and is confident in it. And jumping down to verse 10, it says, When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's incredible. Jesus never even saw the servant, never touched him, uh, never, never entered into the house, didn't do any of that, and the servant is healed. The authority, the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, he restores him to full health through a single word. That's what faith is. You want a simple definition of faith? Faith is humbly taking Jesus at his word. It's humbly taking Jesus at his word. It's not a, a leap in the dark. It's not hoping against hope. Faith is taking God at his word. Only say the word, and it's enough for me, oh God. <clears throat> so what about you and I? We've considered faith in love, faith in humility, faith in authority. What about you and I? Centurion is this great example of the faith that Jesus is looking for, the faith that causes him to marvel, the faith that is the right response to who he is. Have you been asking yourself, remember that question I asked you to think about? Is he marveling at your faith? A thought that hit me as I, as I worked through this is this idea that the centurion doesn't have a lot of biblical knowledge to be working with. 
He has some relationship with the Jewish people. Maybe he even attends the Jewish synagogue and has grown his understanding of the Old Testament. But he doesn't have a lot of a special or what we would call biblical revelation uh, to be basing his faith on. And yet his faith is great. It makes Jesus marvel. How much more so for us today where we have the completed, inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect word of God. How much stronger and greater should our faith be? Plus, we have an additional 2,000 years of look, looking through and thinking about and seeing God's providences in the big and small ways all through history. How much greater our faith should be today. If Jesus marvels at that centurion, how much more should he marvel at you and I today? <clears throat> and maybe you're saying to yourself, or the Spirit is working in your heart this morning to say that, you know, I, I want faith like that. I want to have great faith like that. I want to have faith that, that makes Jesus marvel. But if I'm being honest, my faith is weak. My, my faith is small, and it's, it's a struggle. It's a battle every day. If that's you, I want to encourage you. And I want to share how we can build our faith, grow our faith. And I want to start by saying something that's probably going to hit you a little bit weird, um, be patient with me as I explain it. Please don't get up and walk out as I say this. Um, I say that seriously. <laughs> it is not your faith that saves you. <clears throat> good. No one walked out. That's good. It is not your faith that saves you. What saves you is the object of your faith. You can have great faith, strong faith, that that razor-thin ice is going to hold you up and still plunge right through it. What is the object of your faith? Because that's what saves you. You are not saved by the intensity or the immensity of your faith. You are saved by the object of your faith. The question before us is, what is the object of your faith? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? Because only Jesus saves. That's what his name means, Jesus. It's, it's, it's the Greek form, the Hebrew Joshua, and it means Savior. He's named Jesus because it, it means he will save his people from their sins. Not he might. No, he will. He is Savior. Jesus means he saves, he rescues, he redeems. He is the solid rock that we talked about last week. And as we sing about all other ground is sinking sand. And that should be immensely encouraging because, again, it is not the intensity of your faith. You say, I have weak faith. That's okay. It's not the intensity of your faith that saves you. And it's not the immensity of your faith that saves you. It's faith in Jesus that saves you. And you think, I just, I just don't know if I'm saved. I, I just don't know if I have enough faith. And the scriptures come alongside you to say that stop making a Christ out of your faith. 
I encounter that all the time in, in counseling and, and, and conversations. People are putting their faith in their faith. And they question their faith. It's not strong enough or it's weak. And the scriptures say to you, stop putting your faith in your faith. Put your faith in Christ. Put your faith there. You completely miss it if you're putting your faith in your faith. An example of that would be, if you can think of faith uh, like a power cord. Maybe a circular saw or a vacuum cleaner. But a power cord until it's plugged into that wall, is weak and useless, right? A power cord is like faith. And until you plug that faith into Jesus Christ, that faith isn't doing anything for you. But once you plug it in uh, to the wall, that power cord will have enough power to power your circular saw or your vacuum cleaner, and that's what faith is like. Again, it is not... The strength of your faith, but the strength of the one who you put your faith in. Let me say it another way. It is not about having perfect faith, but faith in a perfect Savior. That's the difference. That's the encouragement. Praise God. He does not say, your faith must be this high until you can enter this ride. Right? He says, and Josiah quoted just before I came up, that even if your faith is the size of a what? The grain of a mustard seed, which if you ever saw a picture of that, someone holding it on their hand, you can barely see it. It's a small little seed. He says, with that faith, you'll move mountains. It is not the immensity or the intensity of your faith It is the object of your faith. Stop looking inward and look upward to Christ. Make him the focus of your faith. There is a wonderful illustration of this uh, from a man named D.A. Carson. I I heard a few years ago. He talks about uh, the the first Passover. So he says, "Let's, let's take a trip to the land of Goshen, right? And Goshen is where the, the Hebrews are, the Israelites are, and the nine plagues have, have wiped through Egypt. The tenth one is left, uh, the, the Passover night. And so this uh, pretend conversation that very well could have happened. <clears throat> but he talks about one, one Jewish man says to the other Jewish man, boy, are you nervous about what's going to happen tonight? <clears throat> the other one replies, well... God told us what to do through the servant Moses. You, you don't need to be nervous. Have, have you slaughtered the lamb? Well, yeah, I've slaughtered the lamb. Have, have, have you taken the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lintels? Well, yeah, yeah, I've done that. But, but it's still scary. I'm still pretty scared. There's, I, I'm, I'm not stupid. I've listened to God's word, and, and I've done what he's told me to do. But I'm still pretty scared. And after all, you, you have five sons. If you lose one, that's okay. But I only got one son, Right? So, so this, this struggle and this angel of death is passing and I'm scared and the other one responds, <clears throat> bring it on. I put my faith and trust in the promises of God. Bring it on. Then Carson asked the piercing question, which I would ask to you, which one of these men was saved? Which one of them lost a son? 
The answer is they were both saved. Neither one of them lost a son because their faith was in the blood of the Lamb. One was wavering, one was strong, but the object was the blood of the Lamb. That's what saves. Not a perfect faith, a perfect Savior. And so we would say, or we struggle, I get anxious all the time, I get scared all the time, I wonder how God can love me, how can God care for me, how can I be, be doing such stupid, sinful, rebellious things? I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. We, we say those things, right, uh, to ourselves or even out loud. And, and, and what we need to do is look upward to Christ and, and say with that song, I have no other argument. I have no other plea. What? It is enough that Jesus, what? He died, and he died for me. That's the focus of our faith. Think of the Israelites and crossing the Red Sea, and I can only imagine that in a crowd that size that there, were, there was a, quite a bit of variety when it comes to immensity and intensity of faith. And I can very well picture that as, as Moses puts up his staff and the waters part, which would be incredible to see, that there were probably some Israelites who ran across that going, woohoo! right? What a savior. What a God. Take that Egypt. Yeah. Right. The strong faith is immense. It's intense. And they just run across so confident. And I can imagine that there were some Israelites who were the exact opposite. You know, they, they maybe just kind of like, like put their toe out and touch it. Is that going to hold me up? Maybe they try and touch the water and they walk away the whole cross just repeating themselves, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. <clears throat> Which one was saved? They both were, weren't they? Because it's not the intensity or immensity of your faith, it's the focus of your faith. Man, isn't that encouraging? Incredibly encouraging. <clears throat> now how then do you strengthen your faith? If it's not the intensity or the immensity of it, how then do we, do we strengthen it? Because we all want to strengthen our faith. We should want to, to do that, to, to grow and have that faith that makes Jesus marvel. And I, I just want to share a few different thoughts there. Uh, I think I have four or five or six. I can't even remember. Uh, but if you're following in your bulletins and you'd like to fill that in, the first blank is if you want to grow your faith, you should be praying. Pray to God to grow your faith. There are a couple of examples of that in the Bible, you know. There's a man who cries out, I believe, but then he was he say, help my unbelief. Does that resonate with you this morning? I believe, but I still got some doubts. Help my unbelief. Cry that out to God. Or, or think of the, the disciples who said to Jesus, Lord, increase my faith. That's, how do you want to grow your faith? How are you going to grow your faith? Get on your knees before God and cry out to Him, Lord, I believe, but help. Help my unbelief. Help my faith to increase and to be strengthened. It starts there with prayer. And secondly, you need to get into the Word. Why did Jesus marvel the centurion's faith? Because of his confidence in the authority of God's Word, right? Because he says, just one word will do it. 
And so you want to grow your faith and have this strong faith, have your confidence in the Word of God. Again, we have an entire Bible filled from cover to cover with God's Word, God-breathed words. And Scripture says that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. You want to build your faith, grow your faith, then don't neglect the Word of God. Be in the Word daily. Meditate on it day and night. Delight in it. Devour it. Let it champion you. Uh, let it be saturated within you. There's that, <laughs> there's that joke about um, if you go to Alaska or the UP, the, the state bird is the mosquito. <laughs> and you should be so full of Jesus that when the mosquito sucks out your blood and flies away, it should be singing the power of the blood, the power of the blood, right? <laughs> like you're that full of Jesus. You want strong faith and you'd be that full of God's word. Your scripture is saturated. You should bleed Bible. Bleed scripture. Third, you should have a loving view of others. You want to grow your faith and sacrificially serve others. Don't just serve when it's convenient. Serve others uh, sacrificially. Have, have the mindset of the centurion who considered others more important than himself, even, even some of his enemies. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, if you're familiar with him, he defines compassion as your pain in my heart. That resonates pretty deeply with me. Compassion, biblical compassion, is your pain in my heart. The centurion models that, but Jesus models it far better. He carries the pain of others in his heart. Picture him, remember when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. His compassion. We see his compassion as he heals as he listens, as he touches, as he does all that he does, would you grow in your faith? You must be a person of compassion. And again, the Roe v. Wade being overturned is an awesome opportunity to show that compassion, to protect the unborn, to love the families, the moms, the children who are in desperate straits, and to have your pain in my heart. And to do whatever we can to love them, to serve them, to help them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you want to grow in your faith, you pray much, you get in God's word, uh, you have compassion. Fourthly, you must humble yourself. Humble yourself. The centurion was an impressive man. By the accounts of everyone else, he deserved, what he, he deserved healing for his, for his servant, right? Everyone else looked at him like, whoa, that guy's incredible. He's earned this. But the centurion was like, I haven't earned anything. I'm not worthy of anything. I'm not, not even worthy for you to walk into my house or be in my presence. The centurion is humble. As Christians, we must be humble. And again, remember that if we deserve from the Lord what we deserve, it would be judgments. It would be eternity in hell. My goodness, that should humble us. Christianity and pride have nothing to do with each other. We should be very, very humble. Every day is a gift from God. Every pleasure, every beauty, every insight is a gift. We deserve nothing. We should stay humble. And by the way, if you're humble, that will keep you looking to Jesus. If you're humble, that will keep you praying. If you say you're humble but you don't pray much, you're not humble. Humility drives you to prayer. Humility drives you to the Word. Humility drives you to consider others as more important than yourself. Humility drives all those things. Fifth, to, to grow your faith, and I know I'm moving fast on some of these things, but I, I <clears throat> hope that it's uh, encouraging you and planting some seeds and you can have good conversations. As I, as I, I maybe haven't said this enough lately, but my door, office door, is always open. 
That's literal and met metaphorical. <laughs> the only time it's closed is I have the AC on and I'm being, I'm trying to cool down uh, all that hot air that's in there. Um, <clears throat> but that door is always open. I, I enjoy visits, I enjoy phone calls, I enjoy texts, I enjoy messages, I enjoy emails. That door is open to love and serve and help any way possible. So as you're hearing this and, and you want to think more about it, talk more about it, my goodness, don't, don't hesitate to reach out. But the fifth, the fifth thing about uh, growing your faith is this. Realize if you're going through a crisis, that that is an opportunity to put your faith and trust in God. Faith is a muscle and what happens to muscles when we don't exercise them? They atrophy, right? Faith needs to be exercised. And trials exercise your faith. And you ever exercise after you haven't exercised for a while and there are parts of your body hurting? You didn't even know you had those parts in your body, right? Faith is kind of like that. Uh, God puts you through some trials, some, some difficulties, and exercises your faith. And he does that to grow you. He does it because he loves you. And the centurion is facing a trial. He's facing a storm. Uh, like we talked about last week, the storm comes. His servant, whom he highly values, is dying. And so he exercises faith and does what we should all do. He runs to Jesus, right? He, and he trusts in God's word, and he acts on God's word. Let me share with you a great illustration uh, from a book called Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. It's a great illustration about the relationship of trials and growing your faith. He writes this, one of the many fascinating events in nature is the emergence of the Cecropria moth, I'm probably mispronouncing that, C-E-C-R-O-P-I-A, Cecropria moth, from its cocoon. He says, this is an event that occurs only with much struggle on the part of the moth to free itself. The story is frequently told of someone who watched a moth go through this struggle. In an effort to help and not realizing the necessity of the struggle, the viewer snipped the shell of the cocoon. Soon the moth came out with its wings all crimped and shriveled. As the person watched, the wings remained weak. The moth, which in a few moments would have stretched those wings to fly, was now doomed to crawling out its brief life in frustration of ever being the beautiful creature God had created it to be. You see what happened? That struggle in the cocoon was meant to strengthen the wings so that it could flourish, and when the brave finally breaks through that cocoon, it could spread its wings and fly and be the creature God meant it to be. But because the person snipped the cocoon, that struggle never happened. Its wings were weak, and it couldn't fly, and it was doomed to frustration. So with trials in our lives, crisis of faith that the centurion is having should drive you to Christ, and that struggle builds your faith. So in some ways, watch out this morning. Oh, you cry out, my faith is weak, increase my faith. What's the Lord going to do there? <clears throat> but sometimes we go through trials, and our response is, is what? It's, I just want to get through this. <laughs> I want to be done with this. I don't want to have to go through this anymore. I, and then we, we, we say this, I want things to go back to the way they were. And Jesus says, no. It's exactly why you're going through this. I don't want things to go back to the way they were. I want you to exercise your faith and trust in me. And trust me, I'm going to transform you and change you and strengthen you through this. And so it builds our faith that way.
And then the sixth and final way that I believe the Lord strengthens our faith, I'm sure there's more, this is just the sixth the Lord laid on my heart. But you need to, number six, trust God for the impossible. Or you could even put it this way, you need to have a highly exalted vision of Christ or view of Christ. I say this based on the centurion and the fact that he says, just say the word, Lord, just say the word, and let my servant be healed. So he, he's trusting God for the impossible, and he has a big view of Jesus. An illustration from a man named Dr. Robert Dick Wilson. He was a professor of Hebrew at Princeton Seminary early on in the, in the 1900s. An amazing man. He had memorized 40 languages. 40 languages. I struggle with just the one, you know. That's pretty, that's pretty incredible. But he was not only a scholar, he was a man of faith, a man of trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would often go to seminary chapel to hear previous students of his, who he, who he called his children, uh, to come back and preach. And one of those days, it was Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was a well-known preacher in those days uh, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So Barnhouse preached, and Wilson listened. And afterward, he said to Barnhouse, quote, If you come back again, I will not come to hear you preach. I only come once. I'm glad that you are a big godder. When my boys come back, and by that he means his students, when my students come back, my boys, I come to see if they are big godders or little godders, and then I know what their ministry will be like. And Barnhouse was kind of perplexed and asked him to explain, and Wilson replied with this. He says, well, some of my students, some of my children, if you want to use that word, some of my students come back, and they have a little god, and they're always in trouble a little God who can't do any miracles, he can't take care of the inspiration of the scriptures, he doesn't intervene on behalf of his people, they have a little God and I call them little Godders. Then there are those who have a great God, he speaks and it is done, he commands and it stands fast, he knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. You have a great God, he said to Barnhouse, and he will bless your ministry. Here is the key to great faith. It's having a big view of God. It's knowing that God is a, you need to be a a big godder, not a little godder. I would ask you this morning, what's your greatest problem at the moment? Is it marriage? Is it work? Is it money? Is it guidance? Is it guilt? Is it loneliness? Is it restlessness? Is it ignorance? Is it addiction? Is it resentment? Is it selfishness? What's, what's, What's your biggest problem this morning? And if you don't think Jesus can help you, then you have a big view of self and a small view of Jesus. Whatever your problem is that you're going through, whatever it is, you need to have a big view of Jesus and a small view of yourself. And that's critical and crucial to building your faith. So often, me me and you, you and I, we're way too big. And Jesus is way too small. You need to be a big godder. What's your response to the Roe v. Wade on, on, on Friday and moving forward? What's your response to what I announced about we're $16,000 below budget? What's your response to our ministry action plan and uh, saturating the community with uh, transformed disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? What's your response? Big God, small God? Big God or small God? Or maybe you're here this morning and you have no faith in any God whatsoever. Maybe you're watching online and that's true of you. You have no faith. Maybe you're an agnostic or an atheist, whatever you would call yourself. You're one of the the rise of the nuns that everyone talks about. No faith in anything. 
I'm glad you're watching. I'm glad you're here this morning. I hope you see from Jesus that he is a trustworthy Savior and that he's ready to receive you. We see in our text this perfect readiness to save. He amazingly doesn't argue with the elders when they tell him that the centurion is worthy. I mean, he could have argued, right? Are you kidding me? Right? But he doesn't argue. He's willing to go with them, even though it was needless for him to go. All he had to do was say the word. He, he didn't get annoyed or raise a question about any of it. He immediately healed this, the, the sick servant. So, so see Jesus as ready to save. See him as ready to heal you from your sin. See him as ready to grant you forgiveness and eternal life. Not because you're worthy. Jesus isn't impressed by your resume. Take that, throw it in the fire. He wants you to put your faith and trust in him and see him as your Savior. I would exhort you, don't try to cope and live without Jesus. Don't die without Jesus. Don't go into eternity without Jesus. See Jesus as this great one as we see in our text. Put your faith and trust in him. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. Jesus delights in those who put their faith and trust in him. Put your faith and trust in him this morning. He's ready and willing and mighty to save. And if you have your faith and trust in him this morning, make sure it's in him. Don't look inward, immensity or intensity. Look at Jesus. Help him to grow. Ask him to grow your faith. And keep challenging yourself with that question. Does my faith make Jesus marvel? Does my faith make Jesus be amazed? All God's people say, amen. amen. I invite the worship team to come up as, as Josiah makes his way up. Just a reminder that immediately following the service is our lunch with pastor or pastors. Uh, that's for all of our newcomers. Maybe it's your first day here today or you've been coming for a little while, but that's, that's designed just as a way to get to know you, you get to know us and ask questions and help you know next steps in, in the life of the church. So that's going to be down the hallway in the gym uh, so if you'd like to go to that, we hope you will, as, as a guest, as a newcomer. Uh, please, when, when we're done singing, head down that hallway. we got soup, salad, and sandwiches for you for that lunch with Pastor. <clears throat> so I'm going to pray, and we'll continue in worship through song. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, help our unbelief. Increase our faith, Father. Strengthen our faith. Forgive us that we are prone to think that we deserve things from you and forgive us that sometimes we put our faith in our faith. Help us, Lord, to put our faith in you. And as we do so, Lord, we thank you that you will grow it, that you will, uh, as our perfect shepherd, shepherd us and, and do what you need to do to, to help us to grow. Help us to be much in prayer and much in your word and help us to be uh, humbly loving others and... and and help us to be in the midst of trials, trusting you. And especially, Father, help us to be big Godders. Forgive us, Lord, that usually we're big, our anxieties are big, our concerns are big, and you're small. Oh, Lord, help us to repent from that. Again, help us to be big Godders, high and exalted vision of Christ. Give us that God in trans vision in all things. And may you be glorified because of it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.